Recently, I've been reading the book, Hidden Figures. It's been made into a movie, and I intend to go see it. But it's a fascinating story about the space program and really got me to thinking back about, about my love of the space program, remembering how Alan Shepard was our first American in space, followed by Gus Grissom quickly, and both were suborbital flights. It wasn't until our third American in space, John Glenn, that we finally orbited the earth. It was Scott Carpenter who was working at Mission Control, and he was going to wind up being the Capcom talking to John Glenn. And he's sitting there, and when they finally push that button and light that rocket, it is Scott Carpenter who just impromptu says, Godspeed, John Glenn. The saying has echoed down through the decades. And he was interviewed and asked, what did you mean by that? And Scott Carpenter simply said, I, I said, I'm praying that God will give him the speed he needs to get into orbit and that God will bring him home safely. And he did. And it wasn't long right after that, the fourth American went into space, and this time it was Scott Carpenter. And he became the second American to go 150 miles above the earth and to orbit. And both of these men were able to get a a view, a perspective of the earth that was shared by only four human beings in the world in its history at that time. They started taking pictures. And we got to see them. And to see this blue ball in the midst of this black ocean of the universe, it was awesome. And both Glenn and Carpenter, when they came back, that's what they kept talking about. It was so beautiful. It was so awesome. I mean, you could tell it really did affect them. And it affected us all as we saw our world really in its place in the universe. Well, in the end, Scott Carpenter retired. He would ultimately go live in Vail, Colorado. He'd be skiing when he was 84 years old. He passed away just a couple of years ago at the age of 88. Only John Glenn outlived him. And as you know, John Glenn passed away back in December of last year. But when they were interviewing um, Scott Carpenter... Locally there in Vail, in the newspaper, they, they did an interview with him, and, and he now was in about 86 years old, and they had asked him, how do you want to be remembered? And I want to read you what he had to say. I want to be remembered as a fortunate man. They interviewed 157 people to be astronauts. Seven got chosen. I'm fortunate. I'm so grateful. I was blessed. And I want to be remembered as an humble man because it wasn't about me. It took thousands and thousands of people to make that dream come true. But let me tell you something else. Do you know the finest gift God has given to people? It's the gift of awe. For awe makes you feel alive. It's awe, wonder and awe that makes you Feel alive. And sometimes you and I get so distracted, so busy, so focused on all the problems that are going on around us, we lose that sense of wonder and awe. 
we no longer see the beauty of creation, the awesomeness of God. And yet that's the very thing that makes you feel alive. This morning I want to continue on with this sermon series, Music That Changed the World, Music That Changed Our Lives. And I want us to look at music that inspires us to think about the majesty and the wonder, the awe of Almighty God. Because sometimes we forget and we need to be reminded to stir our soul to see that awesomeness and wonder of Almighty God. One of the songs that I want us to look at is this song, What a Wonderful World. What a great song. It was first sung by Louis Armstrong in 1967, 50 years ago. And when Louis Armstrong came out with the song in 1967, it sold a thousand copies in the United States. A thousand. That's it. You see, what happened was Larry Newton, who was the president of RCA Recordings, didn't like the song. In fact, there's a story that the directors of that song had to physically fight with him and throw him outside the recording studio and lock it so they could record the song. Well, Larry refused to try to, to lift it up. And so it was never shared really here in the United States. But in the UK, well, it, it went to number one on the charts. It went to number one in South Africa. Number one in Australia. It rose high on the charts throughout all of Europe. Everywhere except the United States. It wouldn't be until 1988. And a movie came out called Good Morning Vietnam. Robin Williams was the DJ. And in the movie, he plays the song, What a Wonderful World, sung by Louis Armstrong. And it's like it's the first time that the song is introduced to America. And suddenly in 1988, the song begins to climb the charts here in the U.S. Now on the 50th anniversary, What a Wonderful World has sold several million copies in the U.S. and multi-millions all around the world. It seems that it is not restricted to initial singing or a generation. It speaks to the souls of everybody. If you go back and watch Louis Armstrong sing the song, 1967, he was 66 years old. In just a couple years, he would be dead. I really believe it's from a perspective of having lived so much life that when he sings this song, it's not making a recording. He's singing from his soul, something that he knows. You see, he was born back in 1901 in New Orleans. He was 1901 in New Orleans, and he was born in a difficult place. His neighborhood was known as the battlefield. People were poor. It was tough. His father left the family when he was an infant. His mother turned to prostitution to try to keep a roof over their head and food on their table. He was left alone so much of the time, he was always getting into trouble. There was the Karnofsky family. The Karnofsky family sort of took him in. They had a son who became a friend of Louis. They were a white family. They were Lithuanian Jews who had settled there in New Orleans. 
And even though he was only six, seven years old, Louis said he could tell that the white folk just treated the Karnofskys without respect. And even though he was so young, the most he could figure out was it must be because they're Jews. They seem like such good people. He would go to their home for meals. They would let him spend the night. No, they really helped to reach out and to take care of him. But he kept still getting into trouble. Not terrible stuff, just general delinquency. And finally, he was picked up and put in the home for colored waifs. That's where he'd go and live. And it was one of the best times in his life. He loved it there because he now had a roof over his head, three meals a day. He was going to school. There was a sense of stability in his life. It was there he started learning how to play music. It went all the way up to the fifth grade. But at the end of the fifth grade, you had to leave the home and his schooling was over. He was helping to haul coal with the Karnofskys, pick up junk. He had learned to play the trumpet some. And now he is trying to pick up gigs, playing in parades, playing in dance halls, playing on the showboats, playing in brothels, wherever he could play, earn a little money. Sixteen years old, he got married. Got married to Daisy. She was a prostitute. Their marriage lasted a few years. He got divorced. Married a second time, got divorced. Married a third time, got divorced. Married a fourth time, met Lucille, 1942. They would be married almost 30 years until he died. Never had any children. He loved children, wanted children. Never had any children. He grew up in those 30s, 40s, 50s when there was so much racism, segregation. Just tough, tough time when you read about his life and the kinds of things that people of color had to live through. It's horrible. And then you live through the tumultuous 60s. But because of his music and his talent, as those years were going on and there was such a struggle with racism in America, he still was getting to travel the world. He traveled the world and he played for the Pope. He played for the President. He played for kings. He got to stay in some of the finest hotels, eat some of the most wonderful meals, and literally see the world. It was such an interesting life. Such poverty and such wealth, such struggles and such rewards. It's why when he was in his late 60s, he was able to look at the totality of his life. And you can tell he sings with his heart. I see trees of green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day and the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. To be able to affirm, in spite of it all, it's a wonderful world. I thought it was interesting, my father-in-law, Merle Kelly, had planned out his funeral service. He died when he was in his 80s. 
And when we opened the file and looked at it, the solo he wanted to have sung at his funeral was, What a Wonderful World. Just like Louis Armstrong, he had grown up very poor. And he had done very well, vice president at Southern Pacific Railroad. He had known great joy in marriage and family, yet he had such physical problems with his back and so many things. But he was such a man of faith. And as a man of faith, he could look at all of his life in totality and be able to affirm at the end, what a wonderful world. I think that's what the psalmist was trying to say in Psalm 8, one of the great psalms of the Bible. The psalmist is living in a time when life is cheap. There is so much turmoil. You live in a time of uncertainty. And yet in the midst of all that going on, it is with great confidence the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is thy name in all the earth. When I look into the heavens that thou hast created, the moon and the stars, the works of thy hands, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You have created us a little less than God, and crowned us with honor and glory. O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is thy name in all the earth. To remember to stop and to see the wonder and the majesty of Almighty God. Sometimes you and I get so busy, sometimes we are so troubled, we forget. And yet it's when you see that wonder and awe that you feel alive. Another song that was written about this was written back in 1885. It was written by Carl Gustav Boberg. He was a Swedish minister, 26 years old. One day after church, he was heading home, and as he was heading home, he got caught in a thunderstorm. He sought shelter, and boy, he watched the lightning and the rain, and the thunder. And you know how it is, how a lightning thunderstorm can pass through, and when it did, it cleared, and everything was beautiful. He walked through the woods that seemed so fresh. He looked at these mountains in Sweden that were beautiful, the still lake without a ripple. He went home, and he sat down, and he wrote a poem. O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder... Consider all the worlds thy hands hath made. I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. He wrote the poem. He had it published and didn't think about it anymore. There's a couple of years later, he actually was at a church service, and someone had taken the poem and put it to the tune of a Swedish folk song. And it sounded so great. And it became so popular there in Sweden. Well, in the end, we know that it traveled to Germany. And from Germany, it seemed to spread to Russia. <clears throat> it was in Russia that Stuart Hine 
an English missionary happened to hear the song and was so impressed with it that he took it and he polished the words, the words we have today. And he made the tune a little more singable, adjusting a few things with that. And he brought about the song we know as How Great Thou Art. He took it back to England. And of course, England in those days owned India. And so the song shows up in India. It's a Dr. Orr who was an American missionary to India who hears the song there. He brings it back to the United States to be working with his groups. And it's there with his groups that George Beverly Shea hears the song, How Great Thou Art. George Beverly Shea, who happens to be the great uncle of Phil Greenwald. It is true, Uncle Shea. Yes, he's working with Billy Graham in the 1950s. And George Beverly Shea is in New York when they're having the crusade and they are introducing How Great Thou Art and it's requested 100 times in the few days of the crusade. And in the end, it spreads across America. And whenever you have a survey of favorite hymns today, How Great Thou Art is always voted number two, just behind Amazing Grace. Such a beautiful hymn. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. When I look into the heavens and I see the works of thy hands, the moon and the stars which thou hast created, to be filled with a sense of wonder and awe, it makes you feel alive. Sometimes we forget. You and I right now are living in a time where it seems like whenever I'm turning on the TV, if I'm listening to the news, if I'm listening to politicians, wherever I go, people want to tell you how bad everything is. What a mess. What a struggle. Our world's in trouble. And when that's what you hear all the time, it's easy to become depressed to become afraid because that's all you start focusing on and we forget to look at the majesty and the wonder of Almighty God. When you feel wonder and awe, it changes your spirit and you feel alive. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And there's really just two things I want to quickly say. First of all, when you feel wonder and awe, it gives you a different perspective. Rather than being afraid, you find a sense of peace. You start to look at eternity instead of just this moment. When you look at the wonder and awe of creation, it gives you a different perspective about life. Just a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to check one of those things off my bucket list. I'd always wanted to go see the redwoods out in California to see those giant sequoias at Muir Woods. I don't know if you've been there or not. It is incredible. Just awesome. I mean, you go to Muir Woods and you see these redwoods. They can be 300 feet plus tall. I mean, it's like taking a football field and standing it on its end. I mean, that's how tall these trees are. They can be 20 feet in diameter. 
Some of them are a thousand years old. Some of them are 2,000 years old. I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around how beautiful they are. Some of them have grown in a ring, and so it kind of creates a cathedral. People walk along, and you go through, and, and you stay quiet. It's amazing. With all the guests there, you're quiet, and it's like you can feel the presence of God. In the midst of this wonder and awe, you feel God. When I was there, I came across a plaque. I did not know this, but it was back in 1945. FDR was president. World War II was starting to wind down. People knew that the U.S., the Allies, were going to win. FDR had already started working, trying to pull together nations to say, how do we start the United Nations? How do we do this different? How do we work for world peace? And he finally got 51 nations to agree to come together and draw up a charter of the United Nations. And they decided to meet April the 25th, 1945, in San Francisco. Well, it was the Secretary of Interior, Harold X, who would write to FDR and say, we need to have a day where we get all the delegates and go out to Muir Woods to let them get out there and see these redwoods. I want to read you what he wrote. Here is such a temple of peace. The delegates would gain a perspective and sense of time that could be obtained nowhere in America better than in a forest. Muir Woods is a cathedral, the pillars of which have stood through much of recorded human history. Many of these trees were standing when the Magna Carta was written. The outermost of their growth rings are contemporary with World War II and the Atlantic Charter. And so FDR agreed. What a great idea. Twelve days before they opened the conference, FDR suddenly died. He was the chief architect of the United Nations. It had been his dream. They decided to go on with the conference and it opened on April the 25th. But on April the 19th, 500 delegates left San Francisco and came out to Muir Woods to sit in the cathedral among these giant sequoias. Only now when they came, they weren't just thinking about the United Nations. Now they came and they were thinking about FDR who had suddenly died. Now they were thinking about their own mortality And when you sit there among these magnificent trees, you can think about life and death. You think of all eternity and all the history that has gone before and all the history that is yet to come. And somehow, it gives you perspective. You're not afraid. You're not afraid of life. You're not afraid of death. No, you have a sense of peace because you understand God who was before and who will be. It is God who is in the moment. And even though they were coming to the end of war and the world had been ravaged, God is still here. We will live and we will die. It gives you perspective. It helps you know peace. You're not afraid. 
Secondly, when you take the time to remember the wonder and the majesty of Almighty God, you can't help but be filled with gratitude. I guarantee you, when you stand there in Muir Woods, you just feel God and you can't help but feel grateful. It's true when you're on mountains grandeur, and when you stand beside the ocean, when you look across the wheat fields in Oklahoma, when you watch the sunset from your own backyard, if you will stop and grow still and remember the wonders of Almighty God, you're grateful to God, grateful for this beautiful world, you are grateful for life, you are grateful for love, it changes the way you look at life. You know, they were interviewing Louis Armstrong and they asked him, so what religion are you? And Louis Armstrong said, well, I was born a Catholic. I was baptized a Catholic. I've played for the popes. But now I'm a Baptist. But I always wear a necklace with a star of David. You see, it was Louis' way of saying, my God is not defined by any one group. My God is the God of creation, the God of us all. White and black, the God of all creation. He wore the Star of David out of a sense of gratitude to the Karnofskis. I told you earlier how they were Lithuanian Jews living there in New Orleans. They ran a junk business. They hauled coal. And when he's six, seven years old, they give him work, feed him meals, let him spend the night, try to help take care of him. But more than that, you know, Louis, even in those days, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to play. And when he would get on that, that um, wagon pulled by horses with Mr. Karnofsky and his son, each day when they would start off, they would go down a street where there's a music store, and Louis would say, Man, I sure do want that trumpet. More than anything, I want that trumpet. I want to play. He knew he'd never get a trumpet. That was so far beyond his means. That was so far beyond his world. It would never happen. Or so he thought. One day they're riding by on the wagon. And he's looking in that window. And he sees that trumpet and says, I sure want to play. And Mr. Karnofsky stops the wagon, gets off, goes in the music store, and when he comes back out, he has a trumpet. And he hands it to Louie and says, go learn how to play this thing. And he did. Mr. Karnofsky opened up a world for Louis Armstrong that he could never have imagined. He did for Louis what Louis could not do for himself. Talk about a gift. Talk about a future. Louis went and learned how to play. And he was so grateful. And he never forgot. And that's why he would always wear a Star of David necklace. And it's why years later, he started the Karnofsky Project in New Orleans. The Karnofsky Project goes on to this day. 
It's a project where it encourages people in the city to give old instruments that they're not using, fix them up, or go buy new instruments and give them to find volunteers who will then work with kids who would never be able to afford an instrument to give them lessons, to teach them, to open up to them the gift of music. Does this sound familiar? You know, it's kind of what we're doing through El Sistema. Louis Armstrong had started the Karnofsky Project to do the very same thing of giving people instruments, teaching them to play, the joy of music. But he did it because he wanted to honor the family who had blessed him and opened the door he could never open himself. A white Jewish family for this black boy No, for a kid who had a fifth grade education, you can understand when Louis would sing from his heart. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies crying. I watched them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands hath made, I see the stars and hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. O God, when I look into the heavens, see the works of thy hands, the moon and the stars which thou hast created, what is man that thou art mindful of him? It's when you stop and you feel the wonder and awe of Almighty God You gain a sense of perspective so you don't have to be afraid. You're filled with a spirit of gratitude and you don't live in fear. Yes, it really is a wonderful world. Just sometimes we forget and we need a little music to remind us. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.